This is In Conversation from Apple News Today. I'm Shamita Basu. Every weekend, we're taking you deeper into the best journalism on Apple News. For the past 30 or so years, it seems like Congress has been stuck in a perpetual state of gridlock. Lawmakers may say they want to work together, but when push comes to shove, the party that's in the majority often ends up going it alone. Just listen to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi back in 2010, when Democrats were in the majority. Bipartisanship is nice, but it cannot be a substitute for action. Not having it cannot prevent us from going forward. Or Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell earlier this year. 100% of my focus is on standing up to this administration. What we have in the United States Senate is total unity from Susan Collins to Ted Cruz in opposition to what the new Biden administration is trying to do to this country. And look at what's happening today in the Senate. The parties can barely agree on how to keep the government from shutting down or defaulting on our debts. Even legislation that appears to have bipartisan support, like the infrastructure bill, struggles to get passed. The majority of Americans say they're tired of the gridlock. They want lawmakers to work together to find solutions. But is bipartisanship even possible at this point? Lee Drutman recently wrote about the death of bipartisanship for 538. He's a senior fellow at the think tank New America. In my conversation with Drutman, I started by asking him, is bipartisanship an inherently good thing? Is it even worth fighting for? What is inherently good about bipartisanship? Well, I mean, the practical reason why we need bipartisanship is just that it's very hard to pass legislation without it. But you could also make a broader case that if the national government is going to pass laws that affect the entire country, that the broadest part of the country should have a say and feel represented in that process. And bipartisanship may be the best way to ensure that most people feel like they're represented in that process and that the laws that get passed are sustainable and legitimate for the long term, as opposed to when we have this sort of pendulum politics in which one party governs, passes laws, and the other party gets into power tries to repeal those laws. And that's a very challenging environment for a country to, to operate because the laws are constantly changing. Sure. And that seems to be the cycle that we are currently stuck in. It is the cycle that we are stuck in. We are stuck in this period of pendulum politics where we go back and forth between narrow majorities. And occasionally we have these short periods of unified government in which Republicans try to cram as much in as they can and And then Democrats have these narrow periods where they try to pass as much as possible. But most of the time we wind up with gridlock and frustration and broad sense of resentment and frustration that government has broken. You know, all of these things that you just said, resentment and gridlock, it feels like these are the words that have really characterized American politics through at least most of my adult life. And when people talk about bipartisanship... I can't help but sense a, a, a sort of nostalgia, but I'm not sure if that's really based in anything. Was there ever an actual meaningful period of successful bipartisanship in the U.S.? Sure, I think there was a period really from post-war period up through the, the early 1990s, pre-Gingrich, 
in which legislation largely passed by 70 votes in the in the Senate. Most of the important legislation was broadly bipartisan. And you know, during that period, we passed a lot of important policies, the Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s, a lot of the regulatory legislation in the, the early 70s, immigration policy, Clean Air Act, a lot of environmental policy was passed with broad bipartisan majorities. So we did have a period in which bipartisanship was the way that things got done in Washington. But there was a reason for that, which was that the parties weren't really all that far apart. And there was broad overlapping coalitions of liberals and conservatives in in both parties. So it didn't matter whether it was a Democratic or Republican bill, it was just how politics got done. And that is an era that is now far, far in the past to the point where many of us have no memory of what that was like, especially a lot of folks in in Congress. Now, you focus on the Senate in this particular article you wrote for 538. How was the Senate different in the past? And what has changed over the decades, if you could kind of walk us through? Right. I mean, so today, you know, we look at Joe Manchin as a rare senator who represents a state. He's a Democrat from West Virginia. And that state has voted heavily Republican for the last several elections. Now, it used to be the case that there were a lot of Joe Manchins in the Senate, that there were a lot of senators who represented states that voted the other party for president. And this was because there were a lot of voters who were willing to consider both parties. And what that effectively did was create a political environment where senators looked at their constituents and said, these people clearly want us to to work together. And, you know, there was no real political gain from being a hardcore partisan, but rather if you could go to the voters and say, I work with the other side, I'm I'm a Democratic senator, but I work with Republicans, or in some cases, Republican senator, but I I work with Democrats, people would say, all right, well, that's, you know, that's what we want. I mean, you even see this in Massachusetts, you know, they're, they're willing to elect a Republican governor, but that's because the control of the Senate is not up for grabs with the gubernatorial election in Massachusetts. But you now there's a long tradition of Republican senators from Massachusetts, from Vermont, even as those states were voting Democratic for president as well. So the simple point is that when your voters are voting one party for president, one party for Senate, being bipartisan is a very good electoral strategy because it signals to your voters that, you know, you're willing to work across the aisle. And, and that's something that they want because they're willing to work across the aisle, too. And not only that, you pointed out something that, you know, many people may not know or, or have forgotten that in many states, the two senators that were elected to represent that state might have come from different parties. And they, they sort of had a, a built in bipartisan interest going into the Senate, right? Exactly. So if you have another senator who represents the other party, you've got a partner in your delegation who can work together with you to to pass legislation. And also, you know, you know that the voters in your state might vote for the other party for senator, too. So you better make sure that you're... (laughs) you're reaching out to them. And now we have very few, I think we're down to just six states with split delegations. 
you know, it used to be roughly half of the Senate. So that's a big difference. Dretman argues that the ability to compromise, to reach across the aisle, that started to change around the turn of the century. Politics became less about what your representative, regardless of party, could do for your state, and more focused on national culture war issues and being in the majority in Congress. More and more states became solidly red or solidly blue, to the point where most senators don't have to worry about winning over any members of the other party to win an election. If they win the primary, winning the general is all but guaranteed. Working across the aisle is just not rewarded at the voting booth. But during his presidential campaign, Joe Biden made the case that he could make bipartisanship work in Congress. I'm running as a proud Democrat, but I will govern as an American president. There will be no blue states and red states with me. It's one America. I'll work with Democrats and Republicans. I'll work for hard, as hard for those who vote against me as those who voted for me. And even though he won, Biden has faced many roadblocks trying to live up to his promises. Well, I mean, Biden is somebody who has had a long career. He came to the Senate in the 1970s, in which you know, was probably at, at, at the height of bipartisanship. And that was the moment in which he had his formative experiences about how politics works. And you know, I think part of his appeal that he's leaned into as president is as a somebody who can bring the country back together. But yeah, you know, I, I think he's coming to see how that is just not really possible during the campaign, he talked about how Republicans were going to somehow have an epiphany moment when he was president and they were going to work together. I'm not sure how much he believed that as opposed to he thought that that was what people wanted to hear. I think he's continuing to struggle with this and his advisors are continuing to struggle with this. And, you know, I think if you watch the way he has kind of leaned in on the big infrastructure spending bill, I think he's coming to a point where the reality is coming clear to him that Republicans are not going to work with him. And at a certain point, he's just going to have to lean in and say, if we're going to get something done, you know, we're going to have to do it alone. And that's just where we are. There's this one thought that I really want to hear your thoughts on. And that's the one of, of presidential power. You know, presidents have become more powerful over the years what is the relationship between the rise in executive powers of the president and whether Congress members feel incentivized to find common ground? As the Congress has become more polarized, it's become more dysfunctional and more power has shifted over to the executive branch. And as the president becomes more central in policymaking, polarization tends to increase because there's more focus on the single winner-take-all office of the president, which makes us more focused on the zero-sum conflict. And as that has happened, politics has nationalized so that the members of Congress are more tied than ever to the popularity of the president. 
you know, it's harder to run against the president when the president is in your own party now than, than it ever was. So then there's an incentive to become even more partisan. If you're in the opposition party, you want to do everything to make the president's agenda fail because you know that your success is directly tied to that. And also your party leaders know that. So they're going to make sure you don't work with the president. And if you know, you're of the same party, then you want the president to succeed because your fate is tied to the president's popularity. And so you're not going to do much oversight or challenging of the president's agenda. You know, you cited research in your article that finds most Americans are tired of partisan fighting in Washington, or at least they say that they're tired of it. And yet we see lawmakers operating in a way, a kind of fear-based way, that they're afraid of losing support if they reach across the aisle or if they're seen as reaching across the aisle. How do you reconcile these two things? Yeah, it is kind of confusing because when you look at polls, most people say they want the parties to work together. They're tired of the device of fighting. But at the same time, when you probe that deeper, you find that what most people mean by compromise is the other side compromising with them. So I think there's a kind of inconsistency in public opinion there because most people believe that their side is right. And the other side is wrong. So the idea of compromise is that everybody should work together, but the values underlying that are that the other side should compromise with us because we're right and they're wrong. So there's not a whole lot of electoral incentive for members of Congress to demonstrate how bipartisan they are. In fact, mostly they, they hide how bipartisan they are. They're probably more bipartisan than they than they let on because you don't have voters who actually want politicians to meet in the middle. You have a lot of voters who want their side to win, especially the partisan voters. And you have an electoral system that, is, you know, with our winner take all single winner elections, you have, you know, just solidly partisan districts and states where you win by being partisan. And that's the way to excite the base, to, to raise money in our privately funded system of elections is to show how partisan you are. And that's how you win elections. Lee, you wrote this book about the two-party system. How much is that system contributing to polarization in U.S. politics right now? I mean, to me, it's the, the two-party system and the, the winner-take-all system of elections that creates the two-party system that is really at the core of our governing crisis right now. Because what, what we have are political parties and elections that create tremendous incentives and pressures to demonize the other side, to not compromise with the other side. And we have political institutions that require compromise and coalition building. So we have political institutions that are fundamentally at odds with our party system and with our electoral system. And one of the two has to give. And it's, I think, a lot easier to reform our elections than it is our, our governing institutions, although certainly difficult. But I mean, the, the two party system as it stands, sorted by geography, culture, identity, increasingly education values and, and most dangerously differing ideas of what counts as a free and fair election is just not sustainable. It, it is dividing us in half. It is driving us all crazy and it is driving us to view our fellow citizens as the greatest threat to the country. 
And that is a pattern that we've seen in other democracies that have collapsed. That's the pattern of Turkey and, and Hungary most recently, is this binary polarization, two sides, urban versus rural, and that's just not a sustainable arrangement. So unless we fundamentally break up the two-party system, we are going to have a democratic collapse in this country. Do you see a clear way, you know, given this idea now that bipartisanship is not a viable strategy, it's not a, it's not really a rewarded strategy in today's system, what are the alternatives? Well, we've got to break the doom loop. And so I, this is why I, I wrote a book called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. And if we go back to that earlier era of bipartisanship, it was really a multi-party system within our two parties that you had liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats alongside liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans. And that four-party system allowed coalitions to, to shift depending on the issue. And that's how it should work. But as we've nationalized politics and most importantly, as the parties have sorted along the, the urban-rural geographic lines, we are in a, in a genuine two-party system that is really something new and different in our politics, that we've had two parties in name, but those parties have been broad overlapping coalitions, much more like a multi-party system. So to me, the only way forward is to break up the two parties and to allow more parties to, to flourish, maybe four, maybe five, maybe six, and to allow for different coalitions and different compromise strategies to emerge. And so not everything is about this zero-sum binary competition for you know, a narrow majority control, but it's about building different coalitions and building different compromises and you know, much more resembles a period in which we were much better able to govern ourselves. Uh, it really seems like that's the only way forward because the two parties are blocked in a death struggle, trench warfare, uh, just digging themselves deeper and deeper into holes they can't climb out of. Lee, thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed our conversation. Here's to a brighter future for American politics, a multi-party future. Lee Drutman's article on the death of bipartisanship is available now on Apple News. You can find the link on our show notes page. 